Okay, Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what is to be in need. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you, Philippians, know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid, and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and even more, I am amply supplied now that I have received from the from F. Yeah, I'm very nervous. Ephroditus. The gift you sent, they are, they are a frequent offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet you, your needs, according to all his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, uh, let me allow me to lead us in prayer as we come to consider God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for your word that uh, sustains us and nourishes us and uh, uh, provides us with the reality of your uh, will for us and the hope that you've given us with respect to heaven. We thank you, Father God, that your word sets the goals for us, uh, establishes our priorities, uh, is a light for our path. We pray that uh, your word allows us to be people who live wisely in this world. We just do ask now, Father God, that by your spirit that you would be uh, teaching us and training us and changing us, that we would be the people you would have us be. And we ask all these things now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, a young businessman in the United States by the name of Dan Price uh, stunned the 120 staff who work for his company, which is called Gravity. He'd been doing some reading 
on some research that's been done on the subject of money and happiness. And it's the kind of research that I've shared with you in church before. You know, that the stuff that tells us that, uh, the, that more money in the pay packet does not necessarily lead to more happiness in the heart. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And it's something that uh, Dan Price knew from his own personal experience that that actually is true. You see, uh, as the owner of a very successful credit card paying uh, management company, he pays himself a salary of $1 million per year. And he's 31 years of age. Not much, not bad money if you can get it, as they say. $1 million per year. It's an amazing salary, but what he's noticed is that he's not amazingly more happy than what he was a decade or so ago when he was a struggling student at university. And so he knows from his own experience that more money does not necessarily lead uh, to a commensurate uh, increase in happiness. But the research also shows that when a person earns less than 70,000 US dollars a year, that any extra money in the pay packet actually does increase their happiness. And it stands to reason, it makes sense. The average salary in Dan Price's company is $48,000 per year. And so for some of his staff, well, they can get by on 48 grand, paying the mortgage, um, putting food on the table, etc. They can get by on 48 grand a year, but as soon as they're hit by an unexpected expense, like the engine of their car blows up, then there's no buffer. Uh, and that adds stress and leads to less happiness. And so at the staff meeting last week, <clears throat> he made an announcement. He announced that over the next three years, that he will progressively increase salaries so that uh, within three years, no person working in his company, no matter who they are, no person would be on a salary of less than $70,000 per year. And for some people, that means a doubling of their pay. How about that? Inspirational, don't you think? I thought it was inspirational. Um, you, you've got to ask the question, well, how is he going to pay for that? <laughs> and he's going to pay for it by two methods. One is he's going to reduce the profits of the company. And the second thing he's going to do is his $1 million a year salary well, he's going to reduce that to the new minimum salary of any employee in his company. $1 million per year down to uh, $70,000 per year. Mind you, he's probably banked a few million along the way. <laughs> that makes it an easier thing to do. But it's inspirational because he's realised that, that more money is helpful to a point, but ultimately it is not the source of happiness which actually reflects something of what God's word teaches us about money. Uh, money is a good thing, don't you think? I, I think money's a great thing. Money is a, it's a medium of exchange. 
which uh, means that we can walk into Coles with uh, a credit card in our wallet or some, some notes in our wallet and we can walk out with a trolley load full of groceries. Uh, money enables us to buy the necessities of life. We need it in order to live, but it is not the purpose for which we live. And therein lies the trap. Our economy relies on people continually buying things, uh, which means that uh, to the business world that you and I are thought of, thought of as being consumers. That's what we are. We are consumers. Uh, the one thing I learned from my finance lectures at university was what, what my finance lecturer said one day. He said the purpose of life is to maximise one's utility function, which by which he meant to maximise your consumption. That's the way they see us. Marketing and advertising professionals study psychology so that they will have the, the knowledge and the skills, the understanding, in order to know how to lure us into thinking that we have a need for whatever it is that they are selling. That is, they don't just meet our needs, they in fact create our perceived needs. That's their job. And so we are, we are seduced. We are seduced into thinking that in order to be satisfied, then we must keep on buying more, buying better, buying newer, buying bigger, that we must, in order to be satisfied, continually be adding to what we already have. Otherwise, the economy goes flat. <laughs> now, in the Old Testament, the author of Ecclesiastes testified that he had everything. He said, I had great wealth. He said that I had, uh, I had all of the things which wealth could, could, could buy. He said, I had palaces, I had gardens, I had servants, I had, I had vineyards, I had herds of stock and flock, and I had, he said, I even had, a, I had the delights of the heart of men, I even had a harem. I could afford all of that. He says he had it all, but satisfaction just kept on eluding him. He said it was like trying to chase after the wind. As soon as you think you've got it, it slipped through your fingers. And ultimately, friends, the Bible tells us that the underlying issue is that of contentment. And that there is a secret which enables... Uh, people such as us to experience, con to experience contentment no matter what our circumstances may be. And this is the issue which is raised by the Apostle Paul as he concludes his letter uh, to the church in Philippi, which you might like to have open in front of you. It's been a good journey through Philippians over the last couple of months, hasn't it? And uh, here we see that uh, in Philippians chapter 4, that this issue of contentment comes up because of the relationship that Paul had with the Philippian Christians. Now, remember those Philippian Christians. Remember, you remember Philippi, don't you? From way back in our introduction to the series, that uh, Philippi was that 
city, which is in what these days we would call northern Greece. In those days it was still part of Macedonia. It was a, it was a Greek city, but it was very heavily influenced by, by Rome. Uh, it had been an important city from the point of view of a, a major military uh, a victory that the Romans had had. And uh, it uh, was a place where there was a, a garrison, there was Roman soldiers living there. That was Philippi. And Philippi, being over in northern Greece, was a long way from where Paul was when he wrote this letter. Because you remember where he wrote it from? He wrote it from Rome and he was in prison in Rome. And so there is a distance that separates Paul from the Philippians. One of the main reasons that Paul wrote this letter was to say thank you to the Philippian Christians for the way that they had supported him financially throughout his ministry over the years, and particularly with, particularly with a, a, a financial gift that they have just given him. Uh, remember way back in chapter 1, in uh, verses 4 and 5, that uh, Paul says that he always prays for them with joy because of the partnership that they have with him in the gospel. And it's that partnership which first began when Paul took the gospel to Philippi and where people first came to trust in Jesus. And we, we know of some of the individuals, don't we? It's one thing to talk about you know, the church in Philippi. It's another thing to remember that these were, these were real people and people who we know a little bit about. The first person to be converted in Philippi was, of course, the lady down by the river. That was, was Lydia, wasn't it? And she was a, a seller of purple cloth, which means that she actually marketed to the high end of the, uh, the market uh, with her, uh, her, her, her clothing. Uh, Lydia heard the gospel. Lydia was converted. Uh, you remember that Paul and his companions were thrown into prison, weren't they? There was an earthquake, and who was the next person to put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? It was the, the Philippian jailer and his family who put their faith in Christ. And uh, there were others who trusted in Jesus as well. And so the little church was established. It was born out of people hearing the gospel from Paul and putting their trust in Jesus. So it's good to remember that uh, these are actual people, uh, people for whom... Christ has died. And the partnership which began between Paul and the Philippians began at this point when they first trusted in Jesus. And it was a partnership which had continued uh, through to the point where Paul is writing this letter. Now it's worth just pausing and saying that as Christians that our relationships with one another in the Bible are described in various ways. We, uh, the Bible uses the metaphor of the family, that we are a family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But it also talks about partnership because we partner together in this great work of glorifying God uh, and building his kingdom. We partner with one another in our congregation as we support each other in our ministries. We partner with those who have left our congregation in order to take the gospel elsewhere, such as Ian and Karen in, in Barrel and uh, Moss Vale and 
David and Melissa down in Albury and we partner with uh, uh, the Hansons uh, in Xi'an in China and with the Shores in Beirut and their worldwide ministry of uh, teaching and training church leaders. We're involved in a partnership. That's why we prayed for some of these guys earlier on. We are partners with them. And the partnership between Paul and the Philippians was made very clear by their financial support for him after he left Philippi. And so as Paul comes to what we might describe as the business end of the letter, see what he says in verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Uh, he, they had renewed their concern for him by sending Epaphroditus in order to take care of Paul's needs whilst he was in prison. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 18, we see that Paul says that he's, he is now amply supplied because of the gifts that they have given him through Epaphroditus. And I take it that those gifts would have been financial gifts. It would have been difficult for Epaphroditus to you know, carry with him hampers of food you know, across from Philippi to Rome. Uh, it would have been in the form of cash is what I take it. Now, did you notice in verse 10 that Paul says that they had renewed their concern for him? It's not that they had forgotten about Paul and suddenly remembered, oh, Paul, you know, let's, let's um, start supporting him again. Uh, Paul wants to clarify by saying that it's, it's just that they had no opportunity to give to him. Now, we're not given the reasons as to why they no longer had that opportunity or for that period of time had no opportunity. It might have been their own circumstances. Some of the scholars have suggested that it may have actually been because uh, Paul may have instructed them uh, not to give to him. Uh, there was an issue that had arisen where Paul was aware that some of his detractors, that is some of his opponents, uh, had were were um, saying false things about Paul and were, uh, were saying that Paul was actually a guy who was sponging off the church. And in that circumstance, you can imagine Paul wanting to not only be doing the right thing but be seen to be doing the right thing, might actually say, well, you know, you better not give me support for a little while. Uh, there were people who would travel around in the first century uh, setting up themselves uh, as speakers of philosophy and, and so on, who would be doing it just to draw in the cash from people. And sadly, that sort of uh, morphed into some people actually declaring Christian truths and doing so for the sake of the cash. So it might be that Paul is just wanting to be seen to be doing the right thing, but we don't know. That's only speculation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul makes it quite clear that he has the right to receive material support from uh, those who he serves uh, in the church. Uh, the, uh, you don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Uh, the no soldier serves at his own expense. Uh, 
the Corinthian Christians needed to hear that Paul had a right to receive financial support from them. But here with the Philippians, he treads very carefully so that even when giving thanks to them for their support, he wants them to know that he's not actually, in doing so, angling for, for more support. You know, how it could work, you know. Thank you so much for the way that you've supported me over the years. And by the way, uh, not a bad thing to do. It's not, just not what Paul is doing right here. And he wants to make that very clear in verse 11, where he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, that's a great verse at the end, isn't it? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's a, it's a lovely verse. It's one of those verses that you'll sometimes see on Christian posters, you know, the ones with, you know, maybe the picture of a strong ox or a lion in the background and across there, you know, you stick it up on your wall, etc. It's, it's a great verse, but it's actually a verse which is often taken out of context. And when you pluck it out of context, it can, can, can mislead people into thinking that what Paul is saying is that he's some kind of a super person, you know, that he can actually do anything and everything all the time. But the context here, the context here is really about the secret of contentment. That's the context. It's about the ability that Paul has to be content in his financial and material circumstances, no matter what they are. Paul knows what it is to be in need. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul described himself and his co-workers as being the scum of the earth. And he described their circumstances when he said that uh, he described being hungry being thirsty, uh, wearing rags, uh, being brutally treated and being homeless. That was his situation. I mean, we're not talking about earning less than $70,000 here and not having enough buffer when the car bill comes in. We're talking about, we're talking about go, having an empty stomach. We're talking about having a dry throat. We're talking about going without food and water. And yet, somehow he had learnt to be content even in that circumstance. Note also that he says that he knows what it is to have plenty. That is, Paul knows what it is like to, have, to be in surplus to have more than what is actually needed. Now, we don't know how much more he's talking about. It might be a little bit more that he's experienced, or it might be a giant bit more. We don't know how much more, but whatever the case, what Paul is saying is that he hasn't always had it tough. 
But why does he need to make the point that he has learnt the secret of being content when he has plenty? Think about this, brothers and sisters. Is it easier to be content when you don't have enough food on the table? Or is it easier to be content when you're living the dream? When you've got it all? The great house, the, the luxury motor vehicles, the premium products, the boat, the caravan, the holidays, the maxed out superannuation account and, you know, not bad things in themselves. I've got a nice house too, you know, and uh, these are not bad things in themselves. But we can have all of those things and yet in your heart you know it's not enough. In your heart you know that there is still this craving, this, this, this desire to fill an emptiness which still remains despite the things which we've surrounded ourselves with. And even when we choose to ignore those feelings of discontent, when we think about it, we realise that as life progresses, that what awaits is deteriorating health and ultimately death. And so we try to cram in as much as we can. We try to maximise our positive experiences, minimise our negative experiences, and the question remains, therefore, is it easier to be content when you are living in want or when you are living in plenty? And I've said it before, how much money does it take to satisfy? Just a little bit more. Thank you very much. No, it's not good to be hungry. But neither should we think that greater wealth is the secret to contentment. Paul says in verse 12, I'll read it again, second part of verse 12, he says, I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, when he says, I can do everything through him, uh, the words through him... And I don't like to throw in the original languages, but I will in this case. Uh, the, word, the translation through him could equally be translated as in him. It's the word that's normally translated as in, but it can be translated as through. Either way, what he's saying is this, that the secret to contentment is to have a relationship with God. That the secret to contentment is to be in Christ. Now, I don't know the details about what motivated Dan Price, but I did wonder what makes this successful businessman so different that he'll give up the dream of a million-dollar-a-year salary and to be content with what is now the minimum wage in his company. Why would he do that? Well, as I said earlier, it's probably because he's banked a few million already. That probably helps. But a quick Google search revealed that the high school that he went to was a Christian high school. That the university that he graduated from was a Christian university. Surprise, surprise. It means that there is at least a reasonable chance that in some way that his head and his heart 
have in some ways been shaped by the gospel. Because the gospel changes everything. When we are in Christ, then we are in a relationship with the creator of the universe. When we are in Christ, we are living for the very purpose for which we have been made. What is the chief end of man? It is to know God and to, uh, and to enjoy him forever. When we are in Christ, when we are reconciled back to God, then we are living like a fish in water. We are living like a square peg in a square hole. We are living for the very purpose for which we have been shaped by our creator. And surprise, surprise, we actually find that very, very satisfying, very fulfilling. But more than that, we now have an inheritance, an inheritance being the riches of heaven, an inheritance where, as we learn in, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mountain in 1 Peter, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for us, an inheritance that does not rust away, where thieves do not break in and steal, an inheritance that is sure and is certain. And so our future provides us with hope, a sure and certain hope which strengthens us to be content and to continue in godliness no matter whether we are in need or whether we are in plenty. Now, of course, when we are in need, as we are able, uh, we look for opportunities to reduce that need. And when we are in plenty, we look for opportunities to be generous to those who are in need. And this actually brings me on to the topic of the prosperity gospel teachers. Uh, you may have heard of the, uh, the teachers, the preachers in churches, who say that God wants us to receive the riches of heaven now, that, you're a, uh, that he's the king, you're a child of the king, you're a prince or a princess. He doesn't want you to live in poverty. He wants you to live in a palace. He doesn't want you to be suffering. He wants you to be not suffering. And they take the promises that the Bible uh, says are the promises of heaven and they say, this is to be your reality now. And in doing so, not only do they deceive us and promote greed, but they actually rob Christians of our capacity to find contentment in times of need and in times of plenty. They rob Christians of that contentment which ought to actually distinguish us from the pagan world around. We see that... Uh, and it's a contentment which should actually shape our relationships with one another, which is what we see between Paul and the Philippians. Because in verses 14 to 20, as we come into the home stretch of this passage, in verses 14 to 20, having told them that he is content even when he is in need, he doesn't want them to think that he doesn't appreciate their gift. And so... Uh, in these verses, in verses 14 to 20, he says, look, it was very good of you to share with me in my troubles. 
And then he recounts to them their generosity towards him again and again and again over the years. And in words that are bound to excite the accountants in our congregation, in verse 17, he says this. He says, not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Again, he says, I'm not spruiking for more cash. I'm actually wanting to give a receipt. I'm actually wanting to, to, to recount the good things that you've done for me. He goes on to say, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And here, turning to the language of the temple, he says, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice and pleasing to God. Now, you see, he says that he has been that he has received full payment and even more. Part of the reason that the Philippians were so generous towards the Apostle Paul is that through him, they have received the generosity of God, which you and I have received as well. In the Philippian church, there might have been rich people, there might have been poor people. In other parts of the scripture, we know that the Macedonian churches were actually generally poor but uh, that when there was poverty-stricken Christians in Judea, it was the Macedonian Christians who, out of their poverty, gave more generously to uh, those who were suffering, the Jewish Christians in Judea. So in all likelihood, there were poor people in the congregation in Philippi, but Paul assures them, in verse 19, he says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. The gift of Jesus. The gift of Jesus who has paid for our forgiveness. The gift of Jesus who, by his resurrection, has assured us of the riches of heaven. The gift of Jesus, through whom we now have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, the gift of Jesus who has given us life, life with a capital L, life as it is meant to be lived. So that, friends, even when we are struggling to make ends meet, even when we are struggling against the seductive lure of materialism, we can stand firm, we can be unshaken. We cannot move away from Jesus. We too, with Paul, can declare that we have found contentment, the secret of contentment, because for us to live is Christ, to die is gain, and nothing else matters, no matter our circumstances. This is the kind of thing which helps us to persevere in godliness throughout our lives. And I take it it's the really the great message of the book of Philippians. So we're going to just pray about that now as we wrap things up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the great uh, purpose in life that you've given us, in the reconciliation that we have with you through the shed blood of Jesus we thank you that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, 
so that we through his poverty might become rich and enjoy the true riches of our heavenly hope forever and ever and ever. Father, we pray for ourselves as we live as aliens and strangers in this world that knows no such contentment. We pray, Father God, that we would be different. We pray, Father God, that we would uh, exhibit uh, contentment to one another, that we would not be examples of greed and materialism to each other, but that we would be examples of generosity and love. We pray, Father God, that we would stand out in this world that craves so much that the world offers but cannot deliver. And we pray that through our example that others might seek the contentment that we've found in Jesus. We pray all of these things now in his most precious name. Amen.